Hi there, I'm Adam Spencer and this is Telstra Behind the Mic, a series of ideas, discussions and exchanges focused on insights, inspirations and innovations. You could say it's next generation thinking. Today's guest, the fascinating Stephen Dubner, has taken economics and rechristened it Freakonomics. If you can find that kind of insider wisdom, even in the most bizarre precincts like competitive eating, look, that's what makes the world fun. That's what makes humans an interesting animal. That's what makes life an interesting pursuit. Stephen J. Dubner's story is unique. And when told by him, always fun. It began when he was reluctantly sent on assignment to write an article for the New York Times magazine about economist Stephen D. Levitt. Now, Levitt didn't want to have an article written about him, but his mother loved the Times magazine, so he gave in. And after this rocky start, a friendship, a kinship in their view on economics was born. And they wrote Freakonomics, a book they will say is about cheating teachers, bizarre baby names, self-dealing realtors and crack-selling mama's boys. They figured it'd sell, hmm, 80 or so copies. Instead, it went on to sell more than five million copies in 40 languages. I got to meet Stephen at Telstra Vantage and got to know how his theories came about and what drives the way he sees the world. Basically, I'm transfixed by cause and effect. I love to understand what truly makes something happen. And often it's a lot harder than you'd think to figure it out. And often the reasons that uh, established experts will give for something are totally BS, mm. <laughs> especially in the political sphere. And so that's kind of what, what I like as a writer is trying to figure out something literally as simple as what is the X that causes the Y? Or maybe it's, you know, not just X, maybe there's a bunch of other factors. When you want to get good data, sometimes you have to be a little crafty. When I get off an airplane and I need to use a restroom, I do so, wash my hands, and then at the sink, I kind of linger for a while. And as I'm lingering, I'm just marking down the number of men who've used a toilet and then the ones of those that wash their hands. I haven't tried it in a ladies' room yet. I'm not reckless, okay? But what I see is that on average, only about 70% of the men who use a toilet in a public airport restroom then wash their hands. So that means that probably, unless you people are wildly anomalous, roughly 30% of you just lied to me right now. Now that's okay. But what you have to understand is that when you're working with data, you have to understand where the data are coming from. Economists call this the difference between declared preferences and revealed preferences. Declared preferences is how a person says they're going to behave or spend their money or vote or whatever. Revealed preferences are the data that show what they actually did. There's often a gap between those two. I'm not saying that people lie. It's not about lying. It's about the difference between our mental models of what we hope or think we do and what we actually do. But if you want to make good decisions and if you want to solve problems, you have to use the data that reflects what people actually do, not what they hope or think they're going to do. Like I said, he's a fascinating man, notwithstanding his up-close and personal way of gaining data in airport toilets. The Freakonomics way of thinking is to ask simple but honest questions of accepted beliefs. You may discover that many things we assume have been tested and proven may not be what they seem. 
They're just beliefs that have been long held almost for the sake of holding them. You say in one of your works, the three most important words for people to be able to say is, I don't know. <laughs> yes. you know a great answer to questions, admitting your limitations, understanding things might be a little bit more complex than a binary yes, no divide. Do you feel that any group of people are better at saying, I don't know, than others, men, women, young, old, Western, Eastern, religious, irreligious, who's got the strength and who's got the real blind spot for I don't know? Well, it's a great question, especially when you break it down into those groups. So a lot of the specific answers to those questions that you asked about those groups, I don't know. I do know that men and women are both pretty bad, uh, but men are a little bit worse. Um, children are certainly... Uh, not immune to it, even though we think of children as being very, you know, their minds open to exploring the world. And that means obviously there's a lot they don't know. Children um, certainly fall prey to it. Western versus Eastern, I don't know. Religious versus non-religious, really interesting. I, don't, I also don't know. the. I'd love to know the answers to all those. But the central premise that you stated is the important one, um, which is that it's really hard to solve a problem or to find the true answer to a question if you won't acknowledge that there's a significant portion of it that you don't know. And obviously, this is not binary. Obviously, you know, if, if there's a problem, I may know 20% of uh, a solution. Um, in terms of what kind of people are really good at it, um, I think that's what academia is really good at. Uh, I'm a little biased. Again, a lot of the people that I write about, a lot of my friends are in academia. But if you think about it, you don't really go into research academia in order to just spout some received wisdom or opinion. You go in to try to come up with questions that have not yet been answered. So I feel that's really useful. Um, I do feel a lot of uh, religious and theological people really handle doubt very, very beautifully. Um, a lot of scientists, I mean, I kind of group them in with academics, but a lot of scientists, um, Again, I hate to keep beating up the politicians if we were looking for a group that are that are <laughs> that least struggle on likely. the I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's a real shame because I as a voter would be really excited if a candidate were addressed at a, an interview or a debate and said, you know, so and so, you know, we've got a big problem these days with X. Maybe it's, you know, tax revenue, maybe it's crime, maybe it's a healthcare thing. You know, what should we do? And I would really love them to say, well, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot. I've talked to a lot of people who have some ideas about it. Some of those ideas actually conflict with one another. And therefore, it's really hard to know what's the right thing to do. So I think that because I don't know the right thing to do, especially off the bat, especially when I'm spending your money, I think what I'd like to do is uh, is acknowledge that I think this is an important problem and that I would like to try to solve it. And I think the best way to solve it is to follow uh, a pattern that we've seen that has worked throughout civilization, which is basically basic science, which is come up with a few different treatment op opportunities, come up with an experiment. Um, but the key is to do it really small. In other words, rather than take a billion of your dollars and declare this is what we're going to do, let me take you know $10 million dollars and set up four different uh, trials or experiments that each cost two and a half million and let them each go and see if any of those work on a small scale. Maybe more than one will work, maybe none will work. And if there's more, one or more that works, then maybe we take that and then we do a little bit more experimenting to say, now, wait a minute, just because it worked small, does that mean it will work large? Let's try to figure that out. 
And that's the way I would like to solve the problem. But right now, I don't know what's the right answer. I, I would vote for that person. I have a feeling not many other people would, though, which is why I'm uh, not a politician. If I had 100 people randomly selected and ranked them in order of their I don't knowness, yeah. num- person number one just never says I don't know, mm-hmm. person number 100 very open to it. Okay. Do you know where you would sit on that scale? Uh, or by definition, do you not know? I'm <laughs> I'm probably, well, you're right. Literally, I don't know because I need more data to know what other people actually thought. I would, uh, well, also, I do know that most people are wildly overconfident in their own abilities. (laughs) So what I would say- I'm a much better than average driver. I don't know about you. Now, let me say one thing about that, though. When people make fun of the fact that people say that, like you just did, and I've done that too, it is possible- that the majority of people can be above average. Mm. It's a median that we're talking about because it could be that the drivers who are bad are so, 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 so bad. Dragging the rest of us down. Exactly. (laughs) Just want to clarify. But in terms of where I am on the, I don't know, I would- That's why I think I'm a better than average lover too, I should say, (laughs) because I've heard some of the shockers out there are really ruining it for the rest of us. Yeah, I'm not going to address that. Uh, (laughs) But I will say this. I probably, when I first started working with Levitt, I was probably in the, right about in the middle on the saying, I don't know. And I like to think that I've now inched up to the maybe 70 or 80th percentile. Um, and, And it's not out of virtue. It's not because I think it's a good thing to be a good person to say it. I think it's useful because you learn a lot more stuff when you're willing to say, you know, and it's why, you know, my first question to a lot of people that I'm interviewing or meeting They'll tell me they do such and such, and and I'll say, huh, you know, that sounds interesting. Tell me something I don't know about that. Um, I don't want to pretend I'm smarter than I am, and I don't want to ask, you know, I don't, I don't want to take the one thing I may know about what they do and say, oh, yeah, like the way you blah, 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 blah. What, what good does that do? That's just showing off. What's a lot better is to say, oh, that, that sounds interesting. Tell me something I don't know, and then I'll learn a little bit. When you speak with Stephen Dubner, you find your thinking challenged. That's his secret. In his opinion, being challenged is the secret to success. And I should also mention another chat from this series that challenges us fundamentally. Challenges us not about what we do, but when we do it. I'm talking about my chat with the author, Daniel Pink. Daniel takes us through the best time of day that you should be doing certain things. A second is not a natural thing. It's something that human beings have made up. A week. A week is not a thing. It's something that human beings have made up. But let's talk about a day. A day is a thing. We can't control it, right? We're on a planet, and no matter where we are on the planet, whether we're here or whether we're here, that planet's going to turn. And so a day has a a profound effect on our behavior. That's author Daniel Pink. Now back to Stephen Dubner, the author of Freakonomics. I've got some more questions and he's got the answers. But in keeping with his philosophy, the answers aren't always simple. And that in itself is fascinating, isn't it? Because as humans, we crave answers. I mean, I'm a mathematician. We love logical, simple answers. But human interaction is not always so clean. When we come together and bump off each other, we end up with bruises or maybe curved edges. Rightly or wrongly, it's that sort of shape that Mr. Dubner wants us to try to be. Your work's been exposed to massive audiences now for over a decade. And on that topic, you said, look, what I'm saying here might be a little bit politically incorrect. You have sometimes stepped into waters that 
ignite controversy. You know, climate change, link between abortion and crime, et cetera. I don't want to go back and revisit. Oh, I'm happy to. Those, but what, yeah. I, what I'd rather ask, because people can find online the toing and froing there, which is fascinating. But with 12 years of having done that and in, and gone into the battles and taken some knocks and won some and lost some, is there a part of you that occasionally these days when your mind wanders onto a certain area, do you self-censor and think, it's probably not even worth looking into that. <laughs> Are you braver now than you were? Do you do you talk just as freely now on stuff as you ever would have? Have, have things changed? Um, I can't think of a, a topic that we've decided to not write or talk about. Um, some topics are too like ridiculous, but not politically incorrect. And, but that said. It, you know, I mean, honestly, the one topic I tend to stay away from is politics per se. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do is because I hate it so much. And the reason I hate it so much is because it's a rare instance of uh, an arena in which the stakes are very high. Let's not pretend they're not. But you've got all kinds of actors or agents within that arena behaving in ways that have nothing to do with logic or rational mm. behavior. And so I don't really have anything for that. I don't have a secret, uh, you know, I wish, uh, I wish I had something, but you know, usually, you know, the kind of, uh, article I'll write or podcast I'll make or book chapter, or whatever is about trying to use some kind of rational exploration of data and decision-making to say, you know what, the thing that you thought was really good turns out to not be quite as good as you thought, mm. which means that maybe we should think about doing something a little bit different. In the realm of politics, that kind of reasoning, that kind of logic, it just doesn't, unfortunately, doesn't really have a place. But in answer to your your actual question, that was just a tangent, um, I don't think so. I, I, I do try to be, you know, I think there's a fine line between being a provocateur for the sake of saying, hey, pay attention to me. I've got something to say that's going to upset people, which is what I don't want to be, and saying, you know, uh, I'd like to take a look at this thing that there's a lot of people lined up behind and maybe suggest that you should rethink it. So I, I'm fine with that. And part of it is being a little bit more experienced and learning that when you do that, you need to communicate it in a way that doesn't immediately antagonize those people. Because then it, then you're not trying to win an argument or even present the evidence. Then you're just trying to be the smart aleck who said, ah, you're wrong. I'm a writer by training. That's what I do. And uh, I don't know if you know a lot of writers, but I'll tell you there, there are essentially two qualifications to become a writer. Uh, I am not capable of making or doing anything. And... Uh, I'm not really employable. You mentioned uh, one of the reasons you're not good with your hands is one of the things that drives you towards being a writer. Uh, I think you said that you you can't really make stuff and you're not very good at conventional employment (laughs) patterns. That left you with two choices, writer or criminal. Yeah. How do you think you would have gone as a criminal? What sort of criminal would you have been good at being? So I think I would not have been a terrible criminal mm-hmm. um, because I'm pretty lazy, okay? <laughs> and uh, so as it turns out, this is another theory of mine that is either nuanced or just wrong, but <laughs> I, I do believe that laziness, maybe that's not quite the right word, but I do believe that laziness is an overlooked attribute in that if you're lazy, you look for really efficient ways to do things, mm-hmm. okay? So I'm fairly industrious in some realms. Like with my writing, I take it seriously. I really, I'll spend 30 seconds thinking about, should that be a semicolon? Or maybe I should go with 
an M dash and a parenthetical phrase, or maybe I should go with parentheses, but mm-hmm. wait a minute, I have a parenthetical phrase in the next sentence. Let me go with the M dash, right? I'm pretty, you know, you'll put some work in there. I, I care about that, but otherwise I'm, I'm pretty lazy. And so I think the kind of, I think I would have been the kind of criminal that it wouldn't have been a physical thing. I think I might've been fairly good at a certain kind of embezzlement, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, about 14, I did a minor embezzlement, very simple, but profitable. I guess the statute of limitations has run out now. Yeah, yeah. I, was, uh, I was selling tickets to the a high school basketball game, right? And they were paper tickets and there was an adult and a student role, mm-hmm. those big rolls of tickets. And you would give them, uh, someone would pay you, let's say $3 for an adult and $2 for a student, whatever it was. And you would give them, you'd tear off one ticket, you'd tear it in half and give the person the half to get in. And you'd put the other half in the box that was the receipt. And I quickly realized that if I tore the uh, the, the other one, right? If I pocketed the $3, but tore the $2 ticket, that's a nifty one dollar. Po- so I, I. So every adult you admitted on a student correct, ticket, correct? That was a one dollar profit. A dollar. Right, exactly. Which was uh, now uh, I I acknowledge that was not an honest thing to do, not a good thing to do. Genius. And I would like to say that uh, I stopped doing things like that um, at a certain point. But I'd like to think that I had a little bit of criminal uh, oomph, and that I could have scaled up that kind of thing. So I think I could have, and I'm also, uh, but I'm also very, I I don't like being a a wrongdoer. I have Mm -hmm. a conscience a little bit. And so I would have liked to appear like the kind of person who was way on the up and up. So I might've like become a bookkeeper, you know, and swindled a big plumbing firm out of a couple hundred thousand dollars. That that would have been about what I would have gone for. <laughs> now, alternative career choices aside, Stephen Dubner asks you to be like the title of his second book, to think like a freak, question the norm, challenge the orthodoxy. And his story of Australian research into the very unsexy world of stomach ulcers is a classic example of thinking like a freak. You were talking to me a little bit early before the tape rolled about an, uh, an Australian Nobel Prize-winning duo who literally turned the world on its head on the on the beautiful topic of stomach ulcers. What yeah. is it you like so much about Barry Marshall and, and Robin Warren? Yeah, so um, there are a lot of things about the story that are, to me, kind of uh, classic heroic, right? Um, first of all, you know, the mentorship, you know, Barry Marshall was this not very good student looking for some, something to do, uh, and stumbled into this, uh, this line of research that was not so high profile or Mm. sexy or or attractive, whatever, and then got really interested in it. And then, um, realized, you know, he had some ideas, but he also realized that, um, it was going to be very hard to assemble evidence for that idea uh, from outside. So, what am I going to do? I'm going to drink the I'm going to drink the bacteria myself, not tell anyone about it. Because the essence of their thought was, while the while the accepted thought was that stomach ulcers were caused by <clears throat> stress yeah. or not enough sleep or too much spicy food, right? They thought it was overwhelmingly right. a bacteria Bacterial, thing, right? Yeah, which in retrospect makes a ton of sense. Uh, the counter argument against that was, was, but wait a minute, in the environment, in the intestines or in the stomach, the environment is so acidic, how could bacteria possibly survive? So mm-hmm. they proved that A, it did survive and that B, it wasn't just a remnant of something that had happened. It was actually the causal factor. Now, it, everything about their, I mean, what they did was 
pure 100% science. That's what science is. Mm. Science looks at a an idea, uh, challenges it, and then assembles evidence to try to make an argument. But then the science is almost never enough because then there's commerce and there's public opinion. In the commerce pay, in the, in the case of commerce, uh, they had to fight an industry that was making it was the first billion dollar drug was the anti ulcer uh, drugs, and basically they didn't work very well. They alleviated the symptoms, mm-hmm. not the root cause. They alleviated the symptoms, but it was a blockbuster. So there you're fighting commerce. And then you're also just fighting uh, kind of the, the wave of public sentiment that says, wait a minute, who are you to say that what we've been saying all along mm. is is wrong? And unfortunately, you see that in the medical realm a lot. You see it in but, – but in many in many areas of science where what turns out to be now the conventional wisdom was at the time considered totally crazy. Uh, we see this in all levels of astronomy and even chemistry, physics, and so on, none of which I know very much about. But um, it, And so what I take from those um, stories, including the Barry Marshall story, is a lot of inspiration. It means that if you are a right-thinking person and you work hard to try to assemble evidence to prove a theory, even if no one believes you, in your lifetime, you may still be really contributing something. And so that, I think, is an inspiring thought. And I love it's just so beautifully Australian because they get to the point where there's an experiment they want to do but there's not an ethics board in the world <laughs> that's going to allow you yeah. to get a PhD student. To, so Barry Marshall says, bugger it, I'll drink 600 mils <laughs> of solution with helicobacter yeah. and let's see what happens. But as he said to me once in an interview, uh, there used to be when he was going through med school, 150 pages in the textbooks on ulcers. Mm. There's now two mm. and it's mainly photos of his gut. Good, perfect. That's all you need. Right? Isn't it wonderful? Another superhero. Sorry, let me just interrupt. The the other thing about Barry Marshall and the story that I liked, I know this was partly a product of the time and partly the product of him growing up in, I guess, rural or fairly, not maybe not rural Australia, but growing up, I guess his dad worked in, uh, Mm. I want to say for refrigeration for a chicken packing Mm -hmm. plant or something like that. You know, he was a guy who ended up in med school, not as someone who was a child of professionals, not as someone who didn't know how to work with his hands. And so one of the reasons, one of the reasons he had the abilities to, to build this path of discovery was that he really did know how to knock things together and build things and work with his hands, which I think is a greatly undervalued uh, idea. I mean, obviously, as the world gets more digital and technological, look, I'm not a very mechanical person. I'm very grateful that I don't need to know how to adjust a carburetor in order to drive my car. I'm mm-hmm. very grateful. I, I don't need to know anything about the chips in my computer to type on the computer. I'm grateful for that. That said, I think there's a lot of value as the world gets even more uh, digital and less kind of analog or physical. There's always going to be physical processes and it's really important to uh, develop them as well. So I think that, you know, um, I think that most corrections in society tend to be overcorrections. So right now when we're saying everybody should be a STEM uh, student, mm-hmm. science, technology, engineering, and math. Well, actually, we still need a lot of people who understand how roads work, uh, you know, how the body reacts under pressure and stress and so on. So I think um, that's part of our maturing as the, the human race is uh, to understand the, the relationship between the physical and digital. One of the great things about your writing is the the breadth of topics that you can touch on, some very serious, some brilliantly light in the way that engages people in the discussion. Why don't we finish with just briefly recapping one of my all-time heroes, 
who you wrote about, who actually really did see the problem a different way and redefine human performance uh, in the area of mass hot dog consumption <laughs> and other eating. Walk us quickly through the case of Kobayashi and what we can all learn from this beautiful example. Yeah, so I do love, uh, I love this story. I also love him. He's a, he's a fascinating human. I've gotten to know him pretty well. He, he lives in New York now. He's a Japanese guy, Takeru Kobayashi. And uh, he became um, kind of by accident or reluctantly a competitive eater. He hadn't set out to be. He and his girlfriend, uh, he was in college. They didn't have any money. His, his girlfriend entered him in a, a televised contest. And he won that first one um, against a bunch of other amateurs, mostly not by being physically imposing, although he's good at that, but by being strategically imposing, which is that he just realized that, well, in these contests that they were like multi-stages, you had to eat a certain amount in round one to go on. He realized that most people just eat, they go all out early on. And then if they did advance, they wouldn't have any stomach or mental capacity left. So he was kind of a game theorist to start with, but then he began to train for the, um, the, the Super Bowl of competitive eating, which is the Coney Island Nathan's famous hot dog eating championship in people New York City. People have seen this, dozens of people standing in front of hot dogs, just throwing them, big, big boys and girls, throwing them down their gullets. Yeah, and it's televised on ESPN. <laughs> and if you've seen it, I, I've watched it in person a couple of times, including when I was writing about Kobayashi. It is among the most disgusting uh, <laughs> things you'll ever see, especially if you go up on stage after and look at the leavings oh. that are underneath on the ground because these guys and girls are cramming in the dogs and buns, but a lot of it inevitably doesn't make it all the way in. And, and it's, it's July. It's Independence Day. So, and these dogs, they pre-cook them. And they're on these big platters sitting out there in the sun for like a half hour before oh. they eat them. So the whole thing's pretty disgusting. But to make a long and, uh, and fairly disturbing story a little shorter, Kobayashi basically looked at the problem that he was trying to solve and, and saw a different problem than everybody else had ever seen. In other words, uh, he came up with a whole new set of strategies and methodology and so on, including breaking the dog in two, uh, separating the dog and the bun because it turns out it's easier to eat them separately and soaking the bun in water because that would make it easier to swallow. And it would also give you the liquid so you didn't have to take time to drink in between. He did all these different things, a lot of experimentation. He videotaped everything so he could examine it later. He recorded he veg vegetable oil into his water. He, to right, them. vegetable oil. A lot, a lot of things were like effective, but made him sick. So you couldn't do that. You know, there was a lot of experimentation. But basically what he did, and he won, and he became a great American champion, and uh, he ends up now, you know, he, there's been some controversy. He doesn't participate in that contest anymore. There's been a contract dispute. But here's a guy who can eat, just picture this, in 10 minutes, he can eat 70 hot dogs and buns. So just imagine the, the volume there. But the, the, the real insight, and he's a small guy. He's very fit, but he's small. The real insight was that he redefined the problem. All the other eaters, most of whom were these big, big, big guys who would kind of starve themselves for three days and then just eat normal style. He came up with a different style of eating because he thought, well, what is the problem I'm trying to solve? The problem that they're all trying to solve is how can I eat a lot of hot dogs in a short amount of time, which is sensible, mm -hmm. right? That's probably what most of us would Sounds come up with. Sounds like the problem. Sounds like, exactly. Sounds like the problem. He thought, he broke the problem down a little bit differently. He thought, how can I make one hot dog easier and faster to eat? Simply as that. And by doing, by having that idea, that's what led him to re-engineer everything about the way he did it. 
And it led to him being, uh, you know, the world champion for five or six years running. So look, not all of us are interested in such pursuits. <laughs> uh, not all of us are even, you know, uh, find such pursuits palatable. But again, I think it's, um, it's what I try to do. And it's why I like what I do is if you can find that kind of insider wisdom, even in the most bizarre precincts like competitive eating, look, that's what makes the world fun. That's what makes humans an interesting animal. That's what makes life an interesting pursuit. So I'm going to keep doing it until someone makes me stop. So when you're trying to solve a problem, look for the root cause of the problem and not the symptoms. Try to understand the real incentives that people are responding to and try to get data. Big changes in society start with big changes in the way we think. That's the root of the Freakonomics thought process. It's a refreshing way of tackling problems. Rather than exhorting people to work harder, to do more, the Freakonomics approach says to think like a child. Admit what you don't know. Ask obvious questions. Try those three things and you just might change the world. So a big thanks to Stephen Dubner. And if you want to hear more of his work, tune into his Freakonomics radio, which has millions of people listening every month. And don't forget to check out the other podcasts in this series with guests like Anusha Ansari on space travel and how her drawing from her childhood fulfilled a dream. Charles Dewick on the real reason you eat so many cookies. And Daniel Pink unearthing the secret motivation behind perfect... Timing. I'm Adam Spencer, and this has been Telstra Behind the Mic.